This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Robert Curson, author of the nonfiction books Shadow Divers, Pirate Hunters, Crashing Through, and Rocket Men. Curson began his career as a graduate of Harvard Law School working as a real estate attorney. His professional writing career began as a feature writer for the Chicago Sun-Times, which evolved into magazine writing. Curson's stories have appeared in Rolling Stone, The New York Times Magazine, Esquire, and others. His latest novel, Rocket Men, coincides with the 50th anniversary of the first manned space mission to the moon. Rocket Men tells the story of Apollo 8, a daring mission to send three astronauts to circumnavigate the moon, a journey no country had ever attempted on a timeline that NASA rushed to beat the Russians. NASA officials told Kirsten that the mission was the boldest leap the American space program had ever taken. We began the discussion focusing on 1968 and the engineering and technological feats that seem even more amazing 50 years later. What really was space age in the way we think of that now was almost science fiction. It had just been a few years earlier that the things that uh, the Apollo program uh, was trying to accomplish were portrayed on the covers of uh, fantasy magazines and science fiction magazines in full color. They were the things of many generations in the future, and here they were going to try them for the first time ever with Apollo. So, uh, But it didn't just feel that way to young people. Uh, it felt that way to the people at NASA themselves who were uh, often astonished at just what they were daring to attempt. Yeah, I mean, you talked about Chris Kraft, who um, joined NASA in 1944, and I can't quite remember. Was he the one that invented mission control? Exactly. He was the mastermind behind mission control and one of the great heroes of NASA Yeah, and so when he started in 1944, you have a sentence in your book saying, it's only in science fiction where when they could have imagined a rocket and in his career, you know, he was part of having one be made and being sent to to the moon. Yes, he was a visionary and believed that NASA could do the kinds of things that uh, science fiction writers had only dreamed of a few years before that. So part of his genius is in his vision and in his faith in um, the ability of the United States to do something impossible. What attracted you to to NASA and telling this story? Well, I love stories of adventure, especially that involve uh, regular people doing things that they may have thought impossible, um, not just long ago, but even the day before, perhaps. Um, I love when people are pushed to their limits, and the space program, especially as a whole, was really pushed to its limits. In fact, part of the reason for its existence was because the entire country was being pushed to its limit by the Soviet Union, which we viewed as an existential threat, especially in space. The country that could control space really could could dominate the world. Uh, the sp- space was and remains the ultimate battlefield. And so uh, I love these stories of people who um, find themselves at a crossroads in the world and choose to go a daring and adventurous and unknown direction rather than the certain and safe direction. So you were talking about the space race with the Russians, and that's kind of 
where this story began is that the Russians had put the dog in space. They were poised to put a man in space and NASA hadn't done that yet. And their timeline was about one and a half years away. But they pushed that up to just four months. Can you talk about a little bit about that rush to get these men to the moon in four months and, and what that meant psychologically and operationally? Yes, to win the space race, which had really been going on since uh, the Soviets had put Sputnik into orbit, the first you know, satellite in orbit in 1957, the race really is to get men to the moon and ultimately to land them on the moon. But, but one of the, the primary definers of who would win the space race is who could get human beings to the moon first. And um, for a long time, the Soviet Union was really um, beating the pants off of the United States in the space race. That all changed in the Gemini program when the United States had a series of um, great accomplishments that kind of took the lead for the first time. But in 1968, a couple things started to happen, um, the most significant of which was that the lunar module, the spidery landing craft that the Apollo program was going to use to shuttle astronauts from the orbiting spacecraft to the lunar surface and back again, began to experience design and production problems that threatened to slow down the entire Apollo program. So this is 1968, and that poses a huge problem on a lot of fronts for NASA. First of all, if the Apollo program grinds to a halt, um, we're in severe danger of the Soviets getting the first men to the moon, and we're also in danger of failing to keep President Kennedy's promise, really a kind of crazy promise he made in 1961 to the nation, to land men on the moon and bring them back safely by the end of the decade. So there's a lot on the line. The real, the space race is really on the line, but there's nothing we can do because this lunar lander is essential to uh, a moon landing. But in an epiphany by a quiet manager um, named George Lowe, also a legendary NASA person, um, he decides uh, in August of 1968 that if NASA can send a spacecraft to the moon by the end of 1968, Without a lunar lander, they can learn all kinds of things about how to get to the moon and land on the moon without actual landing. And by doing that, they also have an outside chance of beating the Soviets to the moon with men by the end of 1968. There was a top secret CIA memo that came in in 1968 warning that the Soviets were capable of doing this by the end of 1968. So this epiphany by George Lowe to send a crew, a mission to the moon not to land, but to orbit by the end of 1968 was uh, a stroke of genius. However, it meant that Apollo 8, which was going to be this mission, had to be rushed to the launch pad, not in the usual 12 or 18 months that NASA used for a normal space mission, but in just four months. And NASA had never sent men to the moon, of course. So this posed all kinds of challenges, risks, and dangers. They are almost unthinkable. When I first started to read about them and get into it, I often had to push myself away from my desk and say, I cannot believe they tried this. I can't believe they dared almost think about this. And yet that was the plan. And that's what they were going to attempt with Apollo 8. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Robert Curson, best-selling author of nonfiction books, including Shadow Divers and Rocket Men, which tells the daring mission of Apollo 8. One of the things about this was 
it was this excitement and this push of the intellect of the people and the imagination of the people who are working at NASA and the willingness of the astronauts. But right before there had been a, a fiery explosion, basically, for Apollo 1, where a lot of these astronauts' friends, the, the three astronauts who went in Apollo 8, died. And so that was also the backdrop for what they were going into. Exactly. In uh, January of 1967, three astronauts died on the launch pad in a test. They didn't, you know, they weren't even launching. There was a fire inside the command module, the capsule, and the three men died. And they were, it, it, it had devastating effects, uh, not just throughout NASA, but throughout the country. Congressional hearings were held. And for a time, it looked like the space program might be in jeopardy. Luckily, NASA persevered and Congress allowed things to go forward. But the specter of this accident hung over all of the space program. And it affected not just the astronauts, but the uh, wives of the astronauts who saw just what kind of danger their husbands were in. And I don't think any of these wives pretended otherwise. They were mostly military wives who had seen their share of accidents on military bases just um, with their husband's colleagues as pilots. Nonetheless, the memory of Apollo 1 and the, the tragedy was very fresh in the minds of NASA when they made the plan for Apollo 8. And the risk they were taking were so uh, outsized that the boss of NASA himself, James Webb, when he first heard of the plan for Apollo 8 and the schedule that it had to be done on and all the firsts that would be attempted, his first reaction, and this is a quote, was to say, are you out of your mind? You're putting the entire program at risk. And he was right. If something went wrong with Apollo 8, uh, that could be the end of the space program. And he made one other observation that nobody had really considered at the time. He said, if something goes wrong with Apollo 8 at the moon, nobody will ever look at the moon the same way again. All they'll think of is three people dying, crashing into the lunar surface or stuck in eternal lunar orbit. But the same was true about Christmas too, because this plan for Apollo 8 required the astronauts to go at Christmas. And if something terrible happened to them then at the moon, uh, at Christmas, who would look at Christmas the same again? So this was filled with all kinds of risks, some of them poetic. You had noted that one citizen had written a letter. I, I can't remember. He was maybe from Ohio. And he, he wrote a letter to NASA that you had in the book. And he was just basically saying, please don't do this. I guess encompassed in that letter is uh, other things that you included in the book was take a broader look at 1968 and the year they were doing this. We lost Martin Luther King. We had race riots. We had the Vietnam War. We had people fighting the Vietnam War. It was not a time of ease on the ground. No, it was, uh, you can make an argument that it's one of the most terrible years in our country's history. And not only were all these terrible things happening that you mentioned, but the country itself seemed hopelessly divided against itself. You know, there's a lot of echoes to 2018, by the way, in 1968. Um, it seemed nobody could get together or agree on anything. Just one terrible thing after another, after another. You mentioned so many of them. Uh, the news seemed to be all bad. Often 90% of the evening network news was devoted to the disaster in Vietnam. So at the very end of the year, NASA is going to send three human beings, the first humans ever, somewhere mankind had never attempted to reach with uh, humans. And they were going to take incredible risks to do it. And the, and the point that that gentleman was making in the letter to NASA was, please, it's, we can't take any more in this year. And the time of Christmas is supposed to be a time to exhale and to at least 
show some brotherhood and to um, try to enjoy a few moments in this otherwise nightmarish year. Why do you have to do this now? And he wasn't the only one who thought so. Um, millions of people across the country were similarly worried, and there were people at NASA worried in the same way. But this is the plan they came up with. They believed it could, if it worked, it could do near miracles for the space program, and they were going to do it. Can you talk a little bit about these three men, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders? They mostly came from um, a flying background. Yes, these three are all military men. Frank Borman, the commander of the mission, was a very serious, no-nonsense guy. Uh, he was considered among NASA's best astronauts, and by many to be the single best astronaut NASA had. Uh, he was an incredibly bright, um, driven individual uh, who viewed the entire space program as really about beating the Soviets on the ultimate battlefield, outer space. And to him, that's what it was all about. It was not about exploration. It was not about going to collect wonderful rock samples or to invent Velcro or a Tang. To him, it was a battle in the Cold War and maybe the most important battle in the Cold War. And he was devoted with his entire life to doing that. Jim Lovell, who we most of us know from Apollo 13, uh, who was played by Tom Hanks in that iconic film, Jim Lovell was very much different uh, from Frank Borman. He grew up in Milwaukee um, in very modest circumstances, but always from a very young age dreamed of exploring space. He loved the idea of rockets and space travel and exploration. And the idea of going to the moon to him was the fulfillment of a childhood dream. And he never stopped dreaming of it, even as he be, you know, went to the Navy and became a great test pilot. Uh, his, his eyes were always on space. And so he had a kind of romantic counterpoint to Borman's um, very hard military view of the space program. And then Bill Anders, who was five years younger than Borman and Lovell, was kind of a wonderful mixture of the two. Borman saw a lot of himself in Anders. Anders also saw this as a very important um, battle taking place in the Cold War, and that he didn't pretend that there was really any other reason NASA was flying to the moon other than to defeat the Soviets. And yet he had a deep uh, and longstanding interest in the science of the moon and of geology and of space travel, of radiation. Um, he was a nuclear engineer, a brilliant guy like, like his two crewmates. And so he was this kind of wonderful combination of the other two. Uh, but almost most important, they seemed to have a chemistry together uh, that made them the ideal crew to pick to be the first humans ever to go to the moon. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Robert Curson, best-selling author of nonfiction books, including Shadow Divers and Rocket Men, which tells the daring mission of Apollo 8. One of the things that is everlasting, there's this iconic picture that was taken on this mission. I, I think it's called Earthrise. And it's this gorgeous picture. You can see sort of the edge of the, of the moon, and then you're looking off, and you see maybe half the Earth, and it's it's kind of a blurred line where it goes into darkness. And it's such an iconic image. Did you talk about that at all with them about how did they articulate such an just an awe-inspiring moment? 
Oh, I talk to them endlessly about it. It's one of the most, in my mind, one of the most important moments in human history. You know, among the many firsts, I could take up, I can't tell you how many, how long it would take me to describe the uh, number of firsts that Apollo 8 was responsible for. But one of the most important was this is the first time human beings had seen the earth as a complete sphere. We'd never seen earth as a whole before. Now, that happened on the way out to the moon. But when they got to the moon, one of their jobs, and it was really the job of Bill Anders, was to do um, comprehensive photography of the lunar surface. One of their missions is to scout landing sites for what would be Apollo 11, the first landing mission. So Anders had trained and had a whole photo plan about shooting all the craters in the areas and, and landing spots. And on their fourth revolution, um, Borman turned the spacecraft in a way that allowed them to see over the lunar surface. And for a time, they're just seeing this gray, featureless, cratered uh, landscape of the moon and a dark black infinity um, beyond it, an infinity of space. And all of a sudden, something unbelievable happens. It's something none of them had expected and something none of them had trained for, but they saw this blue, beautiful jewel rise over the gray lunar landscape. And they realized, of course, that it was Earth. And as Earth started to rise, these guys turned into like little kids. They could not believe the beauty and the majesty of this beautiful blue Earth, the place that everything they knew and everything they cared about existed on. And as it rose above the lunar landscape, they rushed for their cameras because, again, they had not expected to find this. Borman fired off the first shot, we think, um, in black and white, but Anders found a long telephoto lens and a color a film magazine and shot a picture of Earth completely rising over the lunar landscape. And the men were humbled and um, in awe of what they were seeing. And it went away, it seemed, as fast as it came. And each of them had a profound and emotional uh, reaction to what they'd seen and about how fragile the earth is and how dependent we all are on one another, how all we have in all the universe is each other and what a thin layer of environment protects us on earth. And they were all deeply moved and remain 50 years later, just as deeply moved by it as they were at the moment. But Bill Anders told me something about that moment that I'll never forget which is he said as he saw it and, and took the picture, he thought to himself, here we had come all this way and done all this to discover the moon, and what we really discovered was the earth. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Robert Curson, best-selling author of nonfiction books, including Shadow Divers and Rocket Men, which tells the daring mission of Apollo 8. One of the things, as I have read this book and been talking about it with a lot of people, you know, you find different opinions out there. And there are some people that believe that, that we shouldn't put money into NASA. And I find it interesting because I think there's almost a beauty of where art meets science when you're talking, when I was reading about this mission, that there's something in the way that humans pushed their mind, they pushed their imagination, they pushed their intellect to make what they can only imagine happen 
through science and math. I do think of it almost as as this elegant blend of art and science that we need to push ourselves as humans. And I'm wondering if when you were writing this, if you ever found that other arguments where people don't want to support NASA or if that makes sense to you or your thoughts about it. No, I could not agree with you more about the beautiful blend of art and science. Um, I w- I'm going to steal that from you, actually, the, the way you expressed that. It's, it's absolutely perfectly reflects how I feel about it and how so many other people felt about it. I think that human beings uh, on a DNA level are designed to push out from their homes and to explore. And space is the ultimate exploration. And I think that if you um, refuse human beings that opportunity, you're grinding against uh, their most basic instincts. Look what Apollo 8 did for the nation and the world. As we said before, when Apollo 8 launched, Time Magazine had already named the dissenter as its men of the man of the year. By the time Apollo 8 returned six days later, just six days later, Time Magazine changed its mind and named the crew of Apollo 8 its men of the year. That's an honor it didn't even bestow on Apollo 11, the crew that actually landed first on the moon. That tells you the kind of impact it had in the human soul, not just here, but everywhere around the world. One third, nearly one third of the world's population, more than had ever listened to a human voice at once, listened to Borman, Lovell, and Anders Reed during a television broadcast on Christmas Eve at the moon. If that doesn't tell you something about how exploration and pushing into the unknown and even into the impossible speaks to the human condition, I don't think anything ever will. You know, after writing this, what are you left with? I mean, you you spent all this time, you've written it, it's out in the world, but I'm sure these things don't just leave you. How did writing this either change you or what do you still think about a lot? I often think about the wives uh, who made this possible and the importance of family and how um, undertold that part of the story is, not just for NASA stories, but for so many stories. It's a part of the story I didn't expect to find, but it became uh, overwhelmingly important. And I think of that often, um, just how responsible these heroic women were. But also, um, I can't get over the idea of just what this country and what human beings are capable of when pushed to their absolute limits. We viewed the space race as an existential threat, that this was a matter of our very survival as a nation. And under those circumstances, under that duress, we were capable of doing something that just a few years earlier seemed absolutely impossible. And that gives me such great hope that There are things that human beings are capable of. Maybe we haven't even thought about them yet, but that we're capable of if we are in the right circumstance at the right time. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? One of my favorite writers in the world is Philip Roth. And, you know, Philip Roth, uh, so many people are familiar with his novels, which are works of genius, in my opinion. But one of my favorite pieces of writing, uh, one of my favorite books by Philip Roth is a, a true story. It's about his father and his father's life and final days. It's called Patrimony. And I wanted to read a little passage uh, that he wrote. Um, just it's in the very, very first pages of the book. 
And he's talking about his father noticing that something's wrong with him physically. Um, it's the first signs of a stroke. And if I could read that, um, it's one of the most plain and beautiful pieces of writing that I've, I remember reading. What had looked like him the day before now looked like nobody. The lower lid of the bad eye bagged downward, revealing the lid's inner lining. The cheek on that side had gone slack and lifeless, as though beneath the bone had been filleted, and his lips were no longer straight, but drawn down diagonally across his face. With his hand, he pushed his right cheek back to where it had been the night before, holding it there for the count of ten. He did this repeatedly that morning and every day thereafter, but when he let go, it wouldn't stay. He tried to tell himself that he had lain the wrong way in bed, that his skin was simply furrowed from sleep, but what he believed was that he'd had a stroke. His father had been crippled by a stroke back in the early 1940s, and once he'd become an old man himself, he said to me several times, I don't want to go the way he did. I don't want to lie there like that. That's my worst fear. He told me how he used to stop off to see his father at the hospital early in the morning on the way downtown to the office, and again on his way home at night. Twice a day he lit cigarettes and stuck them in his father's mouth for him, and in the evening he sat beside the bed and read to him from the Yiddish paper. Immobilized and helpless, with only his cigarettes to soothe him, Senderroth lingered for almost a year, and until a second stroke finished him off late one night in 1942, my father, twice each day, sat and watched him die. Do you want to talk about why you chose this? Um, Philip Roth writes in the most plain language, um, nothing is wasted. He observes everything and his ability to pick out tiny scenes and motions and observations about human beings is unparalleled to me. And the reason I wanted to read that is precisely because it's not spectacular, but it paints such a vivid picture of his father and his father before him and what's about to happen in this whole book. The book is going to be Philip Roth watching his father in the final days and hours. And I always try to remind myself if I can write simply that that could be the most powerful writing of all. And Philip Roth is, to me, the king of simple writing. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Robert Curson, best-selling author of nonfiction books, including Shadow Divers and Rocket Men, which tells the daring mission of Apollo 8. Can you read a passage that you wrote, maybe it was tricky or hard to write or change from the first draft or just something that you like? Yes, I'll read you the very final paragraph of Rocket Men my book about Apollo 8. Um, I was telling the story of how when Apollo 8 came back, the United States went crazy for them. There were ticker tape parades in several cities. Millions of people showed up in each of these cities. Um, the world had never seen anything like this. Um, cards and letters and telegrams poured in by the tens of thousands. And uh, most, of course, couldn't be read. But luckily, the crew picked out a single telegram from so many, and uh, it resonated with them in a way that they would never forget. It was uh, from an anonymous stranger, I think from Kansas, if I'm not mistaken, um, and it said only four words, um, thanks, you saved 1968. And that was a sentiment shared by so many at the time and represented so much, represented what 
uh, human instinct for exploration could do, how we could be united at the end of a very terrible year, how there was hope, um, even when things seemed most hopeless. And so when I wrote the first drafts of the book, I kind of um, just wrote out what I said to you. But it seemed um, that I needed some kind of context uh, before I got to those final words that were in the telegram. And I wanted the telegram's words to be the final words of the book. So I wrote a few drafts where I just explained they got all these telegrams and one of them was remembered more than other and it said, thanks, you saved 1968. But that just didn't seem um, important enough or to have enough gravity to end a book um, telling such an important story. And so I redrafted it this way. Telegrams for the astronauts poured in by the thousands. One, however, stood out from the rest. It came not from a world leader or celebrity or other luminary, but from an anonymous stranger. It had traveled over whites only lunch counters in the South, through jungles in Vietnam where young men fell, over the coffins of two of America's great civil rights leaders. It had blown across streets bloodied by protesters and police, past a segregationist presidential campaign, into radios playing songs of alienation and revolt. It had made its way through 10 million American souls who didn't have enough to eat, alongside generations that no longer trusted each other, into a White House where a no longer loved president slept. It read, thanks, you saved 1968. So that took me a few drafts to get to that point. Where do you write? I have a, an office at home that's above my garage that is uh, wonderfully quiet. And um, I need quiet to concentrate. I can't have music because my brain always jumps onto the beat and I move around and I can't concentrate. And I can't even abide outside noises like a dribbling basketball or a hammering of construction. So I have this great, I bought these great speakers for my computer and downloaded some really terrific uh, white noise applications. So I'm either in silence or I have um, the sound of a uh, freight train moving, um, sometimes in the rain. And I love that clackety, clackety, clack of a train. And that soothes me. So that's where I write and that's what I listen to. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I live in a very flat area here in Chicago. It's all flat. But there's this man-made hill that's about a 15-minute drive from me that has a beautiful lake and a path all around. And so I do. I go there. Uh, it has the added benefit of getting my exercise in because it's hard to walk up that hill over and over. So I walk up and down and up and down. But I also listen to nonsense on my uh, headphones at the time. I'm a big fan of Gilbert Gottfried's podcast where he interviews um, people from old show business, uh, sometimes peripheral people, and it gets very silly. So the less serious things I can listen to in between writing, the better. It acts as a kind of um, clearinghouse for me. And I love Gilbert Gottfried's laugh, and it all uh, refreshes me. So that's what, I've been, that's what I did during the writing of this book. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I always show my wife, um, Amy, who is a brilliant uh, thinker with um, wonderful artistic taste. She has in the past torn up my chapters in, in the kindest, sweetest ways, but told me this just isn't working. And even though I've been married to Amy for almost 25 years and shown her my work for 20 since I became a writer, 
I never fail to tell her, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're a lawyer. What do lawyers know about writing? Because I used to be a lawyer myself. Why do I give you my stuff? I should know better. And in every single case, she's right. And even though I know she's right, and even though I know when she tells me this stinks, that I know she's going to be right, I never fail to tell her she doesn't know what she's talking about. And she saved me. I can't tell you how many times. She's the best editor a person could have. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, not, not particularly well. Um, I, I'm one of those people who, like a stand-up comedian, who if there's 99 people in the room laughing and one person sitting there with a frown and arms folded, I focus on them. So I have to always remind myself that this is art and that in any artistic endeavor, not everyone is going to like what you produce. Even the Beatles. I mean, I love the Beatles. They're my favorite group. I've listened my whole life. I've never get tired of listening to them. But there are millions of people who hate the Beatles. It's hard for me to imagine. But so I try to comfort myself if someone doesn't like what I've done by saying, this is art and there's no way everybody's going to like it. In fact, I tell myself, if everybody did like it, it's probably not interesting. And so uh, that's what I have to tell myself. But, you know, I do have to keep telling myself. It's not like I... Um, thought of this in the year 2001, and it's stayed with me ever since. Uh, sometimes it's a daily reminder. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word is tenacious, and not because of what it means, but um, my dad, uh, my family business was my dad's motorcycle uh, paints and lubricants business. And um, he loved making a wonderful product. The motorcycle magazines used to always rate his lubricants and paints as the very best in the industry. And yet it was a struggle for him to make money because he put all his money and all his attention into making the product beautiful. So one time towards the end of the company, when it was starting to really struggle, he brought in a marketing consultant and my dad just really was against the, even the idea of marketing or making colorful labels. You know, he saved all the money for the, the wonderfulness of the product. But finally, you know, seeing the company was going down, he relented and brought in a marketing expert. And the expert told him, you have to put beautiful color labels on and you have to put three bullet points on the labels that really get at the, uh, what the product is about. And it has to be exciting language. You have to be, you know, you have to thrill the people because these are motorcycle riders. They are adventurers. They, you know, they need to be excited. So think of three words that you can put on the label here that will describe it. And my dad's first idea for the first can was tenacious grip. And the marketing consultant shook his head and said, absolutely not. Nobody knows what tenacious means. But it was such a beautiful reflection on my dad's sensibility. He cared about quality. And he wanted to describe what the product was. And it did have tenacious grip. And he laughed and he understood. But um, I never forgot that word as uh, just one of many things that made me fall in love with my dad. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Robert Curson, best-selling author of nonfiction books including Shadow Divers and Rocket Men, which tells the daring mission of Apollo 8. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.